Genesis 37, 19 through 27, a familiar story. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit. Some pit that was around. He said, Cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver them to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brothers that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on it. And they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother? And conceal his blood. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. I feel strongly that there's some people today in this service and the next service. That you've been praying about some things. And you feel like all you're hearing from God is silence. They were singing this song that I sought the Lord and he heard. And, and you're thinking, well that sounds great. But I have, he hasn't heard me quite the same been expecting God to work in a specific way and you know what the answer that you need is but you feel like God is ignoring you but I feel like to telling somebody that God is hearing every prayer that you pray there's nothing that you say that God is not hearing he hasn't forgotten about you he hasn't turned his back on you I believe God is going to restore someone's faith in this house today somebody's going to leave with an expectation that greater things are coming even though it's dark even though it's difficult greater things are happening and somebody's going to leave today knowing that God is moving, even when you don't understand it. We're going to be preaching today when God doesn't listen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your presence that we feel already. I thank you for the spirit that's here. Lord, lives are changed in presence like this. Things happen when we get in the presence of the Lord. I pray that you'll move in this service and the remainder of this service. I pray that you'll know every word that I speak. Help me to give it the way you gave it to me. God, and I pray there'll be freedom and liberty in this house. God, I pray there'll be a mighty anointing that rests on me and these people to receive it. God, we give you the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Joseph was the favored son. He was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And for a while, he was the youngest son, so he was basically treated as the youngest. And to show his great love and connection that he had toward his favorite son, Jacob made a coat of many colors and he gave this to Joseph. And it was bright and it was, it was noticeable. If you saw this coat from a distance, you knew it was Joseph that was coming. Not only was Joseph the favorite, but he was also a dreamer. And he had dreams that one day my brothers will bow to me. And he even had dreams that one day his brothers and his parents would bow to him. And not only was he a dreamer, but he liked to tell people about his dreams. He liked to tell people about what God was going to do. And so this led to resentment toward Joseph. They weren't big fans of Joseph. He's the dreamer. He's the one that has these dreams. We're going to bow to him one day? Who does he think he is? And so they didn't care 
for Joseph. And this text gives a conversation that happened and how this decision was made. But I want to tell the story from Joseph's perspective for a few minutes. Because Joseph, he comes and he wasn't part of this conversation. He didn't know what was said. He didn't know what happened. All he knows is that he sees he's going to get his brothers because his, do, his, his dad said, get, go tell them to come back home. They got too little too far. Tell them to come back home. So he goes and he sees his brothers in the distance together with their flocks. So he said, okay, there they are. And he goes to them and completely out of the blue, thinking everything's fine, thinking everything's okay, he gets to them and all of a sudden they grab him. And they begin to pull the coat off of him. And he doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what's about to happen. He just knows that he was attacked by the people he was supposed to be able to trust. And here he is, his coat's being ripped from him. And all of a sudden they take him and they throw him in a pit. This dry pit out in the desert. They just throw him in the cistern that didn't have any water in it. And Joseph is begging for mercy. He's begging his brothers, let me go. I don't know what you're trying to do to me, but let me go. I didn't do anything to you. Begging and pleading for God to deliver him. God, give me freedom for my brothers. He pleaded, let me just go back home so that everything can just go back to normal. We can keep this between us. Just let me go back home. Let's just go back to normal. I have dreams that have to be fulfilled. I have things that I need God to do in my life. Why don't you leave me alone and we'll act like this didn't happen. We'll all go back home and everything will be fine. But instead of being released, his coat's ripped away and here he is in this pit. And there's, no, there's not even mud in the bottom of this thing to break his fall. He just hits the bottom. Nothing there except dry dirt. It's dark. He doesn't understand what is happening. He's confused. And in this dry pit, he finds out that they're going to leave him there to die. Just a few moments before, five minutes before, he was just walking up to his brothers thinking everything was fine. Here he is five minutes later. He's in a pit. His coat's gone, and he thinks he's going to be here till he dies. After a while, Joseph's sitting there thinking, well, I guess this is it. And he hears some talking going on. Here's some movement at the top of the pit, and a rope comes down. And he's thinking, well, here's my moment. They must have come to their senses. They, they, they were acting crazy. Maybe there was just a joke. Maybe it was a prank. A little over the top, but we'll, we'll let it go. And throw this rope down, and they pull him up. And all of a sudden, he sees a bunch of slave traders around. This is not exactly what he wanted. And for 20 pieces of silver, his brothers take him, tie him up, and sell him to these slave traders. And he gets on the wagon, and he's going, and he watches in the distance as his brothers go smaller and smaller. And Joseph was so confused about what was going on. Joseph's day had been going perfectly fine. So all of a sudden, everything was upended. His plans had been derailed. His dreams had been damaged. And everything he thought his life would be had been changed over the course of a couple hours. He begged for freedom from his brothers, but all he got was a pit. He begged that, let me just go back home, but God provided a pit. He, he asked that, I just want my life to go back, but God said, no, I'm going to put you in a pit. Not exactly what he asked for. He, he had everything figured out. He had everything. He knew how his dream was going to happen. But he, what he didn't realize is that God had something bigger in plan. God had something bigger in store for his life. We've all been there before. Life is going great. Everything's fine. We're slowly chipping away at our dreams, of course, with God's input. 
Slowly getting closer and closer to seeing our calling fulfilled, our dream fulfilled. These things that we want to see and we know God is telling us. We're listening to God, but we're trying to get there. And we live our lives and we make decisions thinking, oh, hey, every decision I make is getting me a little closer to my dream. A little closer to this thing that God has put on my heart. I know it's all starting to fall into place. I see how it's happening. I see how it's going to work. It's making sense to me now. Everything's moving along and then suddenly hell breaks loose. Suddenly, everything you thought is just wrecked. We're in a fight for our lives, and we cry out to God, and, and all we hear is silence, and, and we were saying, God, I need to be free. And God says, no, you need a pit. Not what I asked for. God, I wanted to just go back to where I was. And God said, no, I'm going to put you in a dry pit in the desert. See, we ask for light. We ask for rivers of water, for mountains, and God says, no, I'm going to put you in a dark, dry we ask for rain, but God said, no, I'm going to put you in a hole in the desert. We, we ask for deliverance, but it just seems to get worse and worse as the moments go by. And we know what we need. We need to be set free. I know what I need. I know what the answer is. God, just let me go back to normal. I know, I know what should happen in order for my dreams to come true. I have it all figured out. Just let me go back home. Let me do what I've been doing just the way I've been doing it. I know what I need. I, I know the answer. I was getting there just fine on my own. God, I know what needs to happen, so just let me do what I want to do to get to where I'm trying to get to. We tell God that you need to let me go back to the same old, same old, because that's the only way this dream could happen. How could this dream with my brothers bowing down come to pass if I'm not even in the same country as them anymore? God, I know the answer. I know what needs to happen. We tell him, look, I have a good idea. Anybody ever told God, look, look, I know the answer. I have a great idea. Just so you know, God doesn't, his ideas are a little better. And we call out to God, say, let me get back to my place of comfort. But it don't really seem to move the needle for God. And I know I'm giving away the ending of the story, but Joseph would have never stood in the palace if he had never been placed in a pit. Joseph never would have seen his dream come true if God hadn't provided a dry, dark pit in his worst moment of his life, he never would have seen it. Joseph never would have saved his family if his family didn't throw him in a hole in the ground. But we had the benefit of hindsight. The hole in the ground, you see, was the answer to the prayer that he didn't realize he was praying. He wanted to go home so he could see his dream come to pass, but God said, no, you've got to go to the pit for your dream to come to pass. See, there are no accidents with God. That pit didn't just happen to be there that day. They didn't just happen to capture him close to that pit. See, at some point, long before Joseph was born, there was a shepherd that was feeding his sheep out there and realized we need to build a cistern because it's a good field and I need a place to hold water in the winter that can get us through most of the summer. So years before, there was a shepherd that dug a pit in the ground. And at some point, either before or after this cistern was, was built, Somebody decided this would be a good place for a road to get through to Egypt. And so they placed a road there from Gilead to Egypt. And, and they had this road and, and they, they kept it coming. And somehow God allowed that land for all these years to be fertile enough to where that would be a good place to graze your sheep. And so his brothers continued to graze his sheep there. And a few days before this incident, God had moved on some Ishmaelites and said, It's time to go to Egypt. Why don't you go ahead and load your wagon up? It's time to get to Egypt. And so they loaded up and they began to walk toward Egypt. And when 
It just happened to be that right as Joseph was at his lowest moment, God had provided a pit that would be there to hold him. And he provided some slave traders that would carry him to his destiny. But that's not what he asked for. That is not at all what he prayed for. Because what Joseph didn't realize is God was answering a prayer that he never prayed because God's wisdom is so much greater than Joseph's wisdom. And I want to tell somebody today that it may look dark and you've been praying and asking God for specific things and God is not doing that at all. And you say, well, God, I know what I need. I know what the answer is. But what you don't realize is God is positioning you for a purpose and he's been doing it since before you were born. God has been setting things in motion for your life since before you were a thought on this earth. Because God is wise and he knows all. And you may think that God isn't listening, but it could be that God has already answered the prayer, but he's just waiting for some things to align that he set in motion already. And you think God's ignoring you, but in reality, God's been working the whole time. He's been moving the whole time. Maybe it's our outsized ego, but we've been convinced in our North American minds that God should do exactly what we say at all times. We've been convinced that programmed to believe that he should do what I say, how I say to do it, exactly when I say to do it. The greatest lie of this age is that our human wisdom is enough, that we know the answer, that we have it figured out, and we don't, we don't need the Bible because we're wise enough without it. Our culture said we don't need a Bible, we don't need that, and we just treat the Bible, we should treat it as all symbolism because the scientists know better than to treat this as real and we don't have to talk to God about our decisions because we're so important that our choices are bound to bring about God's plan because God must know what he's doing. So I don't have to talk to him about the decisions I make. And I don't need to submit to spiritual authority because being myself is more important than being spiritually covered. And I don't have to change my lifestyle because my ego and my fleshly desires being fulfilled is more important than me being holy and set apart for his use. I echo the prayer of David in Psalm 25. He said, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. This is the same David who was anointed king but had to wait for at least 13 years for that dream to come to pass. This was the David who was chased by King Saul, the person whose place he was going to be taken, was given opportunity after opportunity to take Saul out and he would have been justified. It would have been self-defense. But David continually said, I'm going to trust the plan of God. I know, I know this would be a shortcut. And I know this seems like the answer. But I'm going to trust God's word. God, I wait for you all the day long. He waited for God's will. And it was the same David who said this in Psalm 37. He said, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Or he orders the steps of a good man. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young, and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. David realized that I am not enough. That if I try to order my steps, if I try to make my own path, then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make it. But the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. And when I stumble, if I had the Lord's hand, I may stumble, but I won't fall. Because he's never going to fail. He's never going to fail me. In my humanity, I'm going to stumble. Because David said, when, uh, though he may stumble, he will not fall. It's, gonna, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And in my humanity, I'm going to fall. I'm going to stumble. But the Lord's hand's going to hold me up. 
Because I trust the Lord. I need Jesus. I need his wisdom to guide me. I'll never be enough on my own. I'll never have all the right answers. See, I believe that sometimes something we overlook is the creativity of God. Because think about this. God spoke into nothing, created everything. No point of reference. Every, all the colors that form the spectrum of light that we see came from absolutely nothing out of the mind of God. No point of reference. Nothing to compare it to. Just out of the mind of God. The universe is so fine-tuned that if any detail was changed, life as we know it could not exist. The universe could not stand. If, if just small details were changed, but God put it exactly the way he knew it needed to be. Every mountain landscape is created from the mind of God with no point of reference. Every flower, every tree with all their different shapes and sizes, colors and patterns all came from the mind of God. Animal life with all the diversity of shapes, sizes, body types, colors, all the ones that live in the ocean, the ones that fly in the sky, all these animals. God made this out of the mind of God. No input from us. Humanity with all the detail that goes into the human body was formed out of dirt. He reached into the dirt and he formed us, our creator. And yet somehow we think that if he would just listen to us, things would be better. We, we, we look at everything around us and we know that we could never could do anything to compare to that. But somehow we think, well, if God would just do what I said, my life would be better. If God would just listen to me, then everything would be all right. Somehow I think I can come up with a better plan than the one who fine-tuned the universe perfectly with his voice. But just give me a, just give me a minute, God, I'll tell you how to fix everything. It's the arrogance of our age to think we can just dismiss the written word of God and just come up with a society and a system on our own. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. God told them, hey, disperse, multiply the earth, cover the earth. And in Genesis 11, it says, then they, came, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's establish a kingdom. Let's make a name for ourselves. I know God said to disperse. I know God said to multiply the earth and cover the earth. And, and I know he said that, but let's build a better system than the one God called for. Let's build a kingdom so powerful that it will rival the heavens. So in order to save them from their misguided plans, God confused their language and forced them to disperse. See, God didn't do it because he was afraid of their competition. God didn't do it. He even said, yeah, you'll be able to build a tower to the heavens. God didn't do it because he was afraid of them. or any, No, God did it because he realized if they do this, they'll never see what I plan for their lives. If they build this system that's so far below what I want to do in their lives, they'll never see what I intended. They thought it was punishment that they were confused, but it was the mercy of God that he thwarted their plan so that they could see his plan fulfilled. And Isaiah 55 and 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, God knows exactly what he's doing. His hand in everything that we have, as long as we're submitting ourselves to God, if we're seeking God, his hand is working in our lives. He is moving. Even when we're praying, say, God, I need you to do this, and it seems like he's not listening. He's listening. But he's got ways that are higher than my ways. And he's got thoughts that are far beyond my thoughts. And he's got plans that I could never imagine. Because that's my God. 
We've seen throughout history societies that thought they could operate on the wisdom of man and they could do their own thing. Babylon, which was where Babel came from. Babylon, Egypt, Rome, even the kingdom as small as Sodom and Gomorrah thought they had it figured out. Let us do it our way and just watch how great we become. The evil of Sodom and Gomorrah had come before God and it was time that they had to be dealt with. Their evil was so prevalent and abhorrent to God that they had to be brought down. They were continually evil, perverse, and vile. So God said, you know what, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going to destroy them. Not because I hate them, but because I've got to save the surrounding people from them. I can't allow this sin to spread. So there was a man named Lot that was living there with his family. And Lot was the nephew of Abraham who had split off from Abraham a few years before. And the Bible says that he pitched his tents toward Sodom. And, and he was looking toward this evil city. And the land was great. And it was, a, it was a rich city. It was wealthy. But there was evil there. And Lot, over time, eventually moved from the gates of the city into the city. And he became part of their culture. In fact... When we pick up the story, he was in the gates, which means he was a man of influence, a political leader of some kind in the city. And so Lot had decided, let me just settle my family and live among this stuff that I know is unrighteous. I know it's not right, but I'm just going to enjoy the benefits of the world around me, and I'm going to live among Sodom and Gomorrah. But God didn't give up on Lot. He sent angels to tell his family that I'm going to destroy this city. You need to get out. And it was late, so they spent the night. And so the angel said, you need to leave. And so they planned the next morning, in the morning, I'm going to leave, me, my wife, and my two daughters that live at home. We're going to leave, and we're going to get out of here. But when the morning came, the Bible says they were taking their time. They weren't in a hurry. They were just going through the motions. Because deep down inside, Lot and his family didn't want to leave. Maybe they were hoping, maybe God will spare this city. Maybe God will do something and stop this. I don't want to leave this place. I've grown attached to Sodom. I've grown attached to these people. I've grown attached to this place and this way of life. He didn't want to leave. And Genesis 19, 15 says this. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, unless you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And verse 16 says, But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the cities. See, this is the very first time in the Bible the word mercy or merciful shows up. This is the first act of mercy specifically called out in the Bible. And the first time we see mercy in the Bible is not the angel saying, let me give you a hug and let me save everything. No, the first time we see mercy, mercy has Lot by the hand and is pulling him out of the city. The first instance of mercy was not, hey, why don't you do something about it? No, the, the first instance of mercy was a pull from heaven. It was a pull saying, hey, I can't let you stay where you are. I can't let you stay in the city. The first act of mercy was I'm going to give you what you don't want right now. Because what you want is Sodom. But I'm merciful. There's more for you. There's something better for your life. See, Mom, I believe God's pulling on some prodigals right now. I believe that God is pulling on some prodigals and pulling on some people. And they may be pulling back right now. They might not have decided they're quite ready to leave Sodom. But can I tell you, they're not going to stay there without mercy pulling. And mercy drawing them out of the city. They're going to feel a pull everywhere that they go and everything that they do. 
Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. See, our God is he's a merciful God and he will not leave you behind. He's too merciful to leave you and not give you a chance. He's too merciful to not come down and grab you by the hand and say, hey, there's better for you. Why don't you come out of the city? Why don't you get away from this stuff? Why don't you leave this stuff behind? The mercy of God. You want to know why God wouldn't listen to Job to Lot? Because the Lord is merciful. You want to know why God isn't repairing certain relationships or opening certain doors in your life? If you want to know why a certain job won't seem to pan out. If you want to know why God won't leave you alone and let you do what you want to do. If you want to know why God is pulling at your heart today. You want to know why God isn't listening to your prayers and letting you stay where you are. Because the Lord is merciful. If you want to know why God isn't just leaving you alone. It's because God is merciful. He's too merciful to let you stay where you are. He's too merciful to allow you to be comfortable in this world. He's too merciful to sit back and allow you to settle for less than what he has for you. In Mark 9, we find where Jesus walked up on a crowd of disciples and scribes, and there was this argument that was breaking out. And he didn't know what had led up to it, but he walks up, and it's just kind of rowdy out there watching this crowd. And suddenly, they saw him, and they, they, they ran to Jesus, a few of them in the crowd. In Mark 9 and 16, says, And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered. They yelled out, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast him out and they were not able. This man from within the group yelled out, saying, my son needs deliverance. But your disciples couldn't do it. My son needs to be set free. This man was desperate. He, didn't, he wasn't just like everybody else. He wasn't afraid to be embarrassed. He wasn't afraid to cause a scene. He said, I got a need. I got a situation. And they came to them looking for an answer because he had tried everything else. He had tried all the other answers and there were no answers. So he came to his disciples, to Jesus, saying, if they can't do something, then I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. This is my last hope. This is my last option. And he comes to Jesus' disciples, but they didn't work. God didn't answer his prayer. So Jesus looked at the crowd and the Bible says he groaned at their faithlessness and he called for the boy. And they brought him and immediately the boy fell to the ground, began convulsing and was foaming at the mouth. And it was just as bad as the father had said. Just like he said, it was a terrible thing. But man, he finally got the boy to Jesus. So everything's going to be all right. I, I got him here. The disciples could do it. I thought they were going to be able to, but God didn't listen to them. Well, now Jesus is here, so it's going to be all right. And he watched as Jesus looked at the boy and Jesus began to open his mouth. And he knows he's getting ready to form some words. This is the moment he was waiting for. He got him to Jesus. He did what he could. Now Jesus was about to say something and Jesus was about to set him free. And everything's going to be all right. He finally heard my prayer. But an expectation started to spike. But then it was short-lived in Mark 9, 21. And Jesus opened his mouth. He asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? From childbirth. You can imagine this frustration. Jesus, can we just talk about this later? Jesus, my son is right here convulsing in front of you right now. I told you what was happening. Can we talk about this? We can, we can go to Bible study later, but I just need something right now. 
Jesus, can, can, we, can we talk? My son is struggling. He's convulsing right here in front of you. I know what I need. I need you to touch my son. I know what the need is. He needs deliverance. That's it. It's not time for story time. I know what I need. So he answered from childhood. Then he continued in 22. And it has cast him often into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. By this point, he's flustered because he prayed. He asked the disciples. They couldn't do it. He comes to Jesus, and instead of doing it, he starts asking questions. It's like, look, if you can do something about this, now's the time. We're in, we're in a bind. We're in, we're in a bad spot, Jesus. It's like, look, I don't know what, what, what's that important right now to Jesus, but I know what we need. I know what I need right now. I need you to have compassion on my son. I need you to do something about what is happening right here in front of you right now. That's the only prayer that matters, Jesus, fix my son. It's the only prayer. Because he knew what he needed. It was obvious what he needed. He needed a son healed, that's it. But suddenly the wisdom of Jesus revealed. He unveiled what this was all about. Verse 23, and Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And immediately the father cried out, and some versions say with tears, and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. See, the man came thinking that his only need was a son needed to be delivered. He showed up and the only prayer that mattered is God fix my son as soon as you can. That's the only thing that matters. And Jesus began to question him and say, well, when did this start? Because he wanted the man to realize this started somewhere. I need you to deal with that. There was a beginning of this somewhere. And then he said, well, he's done that. And then he wanted to realize that, yeah, I came to, boy, to set the boy free. But I also came to set you free from your unbelief. Because if Jesus would have just set the boy free, they'd have went back to the same old mess, and before long he'd have been right back in the same spot. But Jesus looked down and realized, oh, I can set the boy free, and we'll be right back in the same boat. He said, but there's another need that needs to be met right now. This man's doubt needs to be dealt with. Because if Jesus didn't deal with the doubt, they'd have fell right back where they were. See, the man thought Jesus wasn't listening. He thought God wasn't hearing his prayer. He thought that he was being ignored. But what he didn't realize is Jesus was such in the prayer that he never prayed. Jesus was working in the need he didn't realize he had. But that's the goodness of God. That's the mercy of God that I'll pull for you when you don't realize you need to be pulled. I'll pull and I won't let you go because I'm working on you in areas that you don't see. Because I realize there's something bigger going on. And I don't want to just touch your one need. I want to change your life. I want to change everything about you. We have to understand that he is the shepherd. We are the sheep. And, and he knows what we need even when we don't understand what we need. He's fighting back the wolves and the lions that we don't see. He's guiding us and directing us away from harm that we don't even understand is happening. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of the Lord. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he's the good shepherd that realizes what I need even when I don't realize I need it. He is the good shepherd that knows that I may not go exactly where I expected to go, but I'm not going to go without. He makes me to lie down in pastures when I don't want to lie down. He leads me beside still waters that I didn't even ask for. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness even when I want to go my own way. He leads me in a path of righteousness and protection. And when I find myself in the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and the staff are guiding me and protecting me in ways I don't even know. When I think that he needs to defeat my adversaries, no, he goes and sets up a table in the, adversary of my, in the presence of my adversaries to let me and them know that he has all authority and all power. That he is God alone. He anoints my head with oil and heals me even when I think I'm fine. And when I think my cup is full, he just keeps on pouring and just makes a mess of my table because he knows what I need. And everywhere that I go, goodness and mercy are following me, ready to, ready to pull me back when I wander too far. And I have a place in the Lord's house, despite every failure of my life, every, despite every time I walked away, every time I went after myself, I have a place in the Lord's house, in the presence of the Lord. And it's not because I always prayed the right prayer, but because I have a Savior who didn't listen to my faithless small prayers. Musicians can come. I am who I am because his goodness was greater than my imagination. Ephesians 3, 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that worked within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. To him be the glory. To the God that knew better than I did what I needed. To the God when I was crying out for relief and God said, No, I'm doing something in your life. I can't give you relief right now. To the God who knew what I needed when my imagination was limited to what God could do. When I thought I just needed freedom. He said, No, you need a pit. Because I need to position you. And I need to direct you. And I need to put you in slavery. I need to put you through some things. Because it's all guiding you to something greater than you ever could imagine. But that's the goodness of God. To God, to glory be that God. Just stand to your feet. See, the problem with our prayers is that far too often they're jaded with fear, doubt, and distractions. That we come as the man thinking, God, you can just fix one little part of my need. That I have this going on this week. God, I need you to fix this. Everything else can wait. Put everything else on the back burner. My prayer life, will deal with that later. Fasting, well, I'll get to that later. Consecration, drawing closer. We'll, we'll deal with that at some other point. But just right now, God, I have this little need I need you to deal with. And God said, okay, well, how about we go to a pit? How about we spend some time here? How about we go through this for a little while because I'm making something in you. I'm shaping something in you. I know you want to stay where you are, but I, I need to move you away from there. I need to get you out of this rut. I know you're comfortable there. I need to shake you out of that. I know you think you can just go back to what you've always done and it'll eventually get to what I'm trying to lead you. No, we've got to change some things. I'm going to shake your little world. There's a difference between the prayers of those who have been broken by life and those who have been broken by God. There's a level of spiritual maturity there. We come 
There's a difference. God responds different. Those who have been broken by life, and maybe that's where you are today, that you just come in, you just started, you're just getting into this thing, life has been has tore you apart. You know what, God's, God will meet you, and then God's going to give you comfort, and God will give you peace, and God will meet that need today. I 100% believe it. God, God's near to the broken heart. But those who have been broken by God, who've taken that step in, in, in their walk with God, they've become more spiritually mature, and all of a sudden things are going wrong. Those who have been broken by God, they pray, and they don't receive comfort. They receive spiritual restlessness. They receive a burden. And it doesn't seem to match up. God, I'm praying for relief, and things just get a little more stirred up. See, too many times, we come to church and we bow down for five seconds and we say, God, send us revival. We pray for a minute or two. God, send us revival. We get up and we walk out the same way we did. And there's no brokenness and there's no intercession. And we wonder, why isn't God hearing my prayers? Why isn't God doing the thing that I need him to do? I asked for revival. Why am I not seeing revival? Can I tell you, revival starts within your heart. And sometimes when you go to God and you say, God, send us revival. God's answer is, all right, stay there a little while. Why don't you stay right where you are? I'm about to break some things. God said, I'm about to wreck shop. Because you can't go back to what you used to be and see the dreams that I've called for you to do. You can't go back to the same old, same old and expect me to, to just magically carry you to this place. I'm working in you. So you have to stop praying, God, make my life easier. Start praying, God, make me a vessel. Start praying, God, fix everything. And say, God, whatever you want to do, let's do it. God, I'm available. I'm here. I'm laying my life down. Take me and do what you want to do. I believe that there's about to be some intercession to take place in this room. As I got ready for this sermon, it's what I felt, that there's going to be a spirit of intercession. And intercession is basically, we're standing in the gap for some things. And sometimes we know what it is. And sometimes we pray in the spirit and we don't know what it is. It's the spirit praying through us. That God is praying for things that we don't understand. But I believe that's going to happen. But I don't say this lightly. But as I got this message together, God spoke this word to me. I sent it to Pastor because I wanted to make sure that I was feeling right. This is what God said. He said, in 2024 will be a year of great chaos, but the chaos will break the fallow ground and make space for great harvest. Understand that tribulation doesn't mean that God has rejected you, but it's the vehicle that God uses to position you for his greater work. Uncertainty is the platform that God uses to establish your faith in him. Because when everything else is shaken, God's never shaken. You learn to trust in the unchanging foundation of Christ. When the world around you is shaken, he's the only thing that's stable. And as we see the guidance of God through our chaos, we will see the wisdom of God revealed in the world. I don't know what this year is going to look like. No idea. But I do know that we're going to see the wisdom of God revealed in the chaos of this world. And that's only going to happen when the church has made itself available to be the vessels. This only happens when the church says, all right, God, whatever you want to do, I'll do, I'll surrender. I'll give myself up. God, whatever you're trying to do, let me be part of it and surrender ourselves to it. See, one of the most gracious things God can do is ignore my small prayers, my faithless prayers. One of the most merciful things God can do is to reject my prayer that's founded in selfishness, to reject my prayer that's founded in small faith, founded in doubt. 
the greatest revivals happen when God ignores the reservations of the prayers of the majority and answers the heartbroken prayers of the minority. If we want to see revival, what this is all about, this message isn't necessarily about our individual needs. What this is really about is we all recognize this world needs revival. We all recognize our nation, our area needs revival. Crime, drugs, death, uncertainty, horrible abuse, all these things are happening around us. And we understand our world needs revival. They don't need another person in the white. That's not going to fix it. What's going to fix our world is Jesus. And what's going to fix our world is Jesus working through the church. Being the light we were always called to be. In a few minutes, we're going to pray. And I want us to intercede. I want us to begin to pray for our nation. I want us to begin to pray for our communities. I want us to begin to pray for our state. This isn't in my notes. This is what I feel. We're going to pray for our nation. We're going to pray for our communities that God's going to move throughout, our, th- throughout this area. And God's going to shake some things. And in a few months, when we start seeing the chaos, we're not going to get afraid. We're not going to be shaken because God has told us what's happening. And God said, if you'll, if you'll hang tight through the chaos, I'll show you my glory. I'll show you my wisdom. And when everything is said and done, we're going to see that God was working and moving. And God was positioning the river all along. That God was setting us in place all along for his glory to be revealed.